Are you in perimenopause or menopause and have questions? My co-host Andrea Donsky has a podcast called Menopause Reimagined, where she answers your questions about this phase of life. So stay tuned at the end where I will share five minutes of her amazing podcast and there will be a link in the show notes where you can go and listen to the whole episode. Andrea is brilliant and she has worked so hard and knows her stuff. So be sure to check out Menopause Reimagined after this episode of Health Power. Thanks. I get about four to six books a week. I've been doing this for a very long time. And when I get a book that I just get sucked into after like two sentences, it makes me so happy. This happened today. I read this book in one sitting. It is freaking awesome. It is called That's Mental, Painfully Funny Things That Drive Me Crazy About Being Mentally Ill. And it is by Amanda Rosenberg, who joins us now. Hey, Amanda. Hi. Hi there. Oh, my God. You are so freaking funny. <laughs> I mean, just I, no, literally my husband's like, what's going on over there? You know, it's like every like three seconds, I am cracking up and I am a person that loves humor. And this book is, is brilliant. It's, it's not only funny, but you give incredible advice. You help us all not be such idiots when it comes to mental health issues. And I just want to just congratulate you. This is like a must read for everybody. Thank you so much. Yes, it, it really is. I want to say that uh, one of the things that cracked me up right away is you write. And by the way, I I took so many blurbs from the book that I could spend the entire time just reading them and it would take five hours, but I won't do that because I want people to read the book, but I'll share some of my favorites. I always thought mental illness should look a certain way, should feel a certain way and even taste. Uh, not really, but I'm pretty sure depression would taste like olives because olives taste like fermented ass and we don't talk about it enough. We're only five seconds into the book, but this is absolutely the hill I will die on. I, I would love to know just, did you always have a good sense of humor? Is this something that, was it a coping mechanism? Because it's just so, your wit is so quick. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure. I mean, I, 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 I've never been extraordinarily funny, but um, I, I guess my, my friends would say I'm, I'm sort of funny, I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've never really sat down and thought about how hilarious I am. And maybe I should. Maybe I should do that. But um, I think you should. <laughs> like you could take this on the road, like raise awareness with your humor, right? And get people to get their heads out of their asses when it comes to mental health issues. <laughs> Someone asked me in an interview, um, does, does your therapist talk about your humor as maybe, you know, um, something that used to deflect and I was like, oh, we've got so many more priorities before talking about whether, like, whether I use humor to deflect from serious issues. Like, we've got so much to deal with. My therapist would be like, there's a, there's a whole list before we get to that. So yeah, I've never really thought about it. When you talk about the stigma and you talk about that you never learned, but it was slowly absorbed over time. You talk about societal osmosis. And that is so true. I mean, it, it, people are so flip with just being like, oh my God, that's so crazy. Or are you insane? Oh, that guy's schizo. Yeah. I mean, you, like from a young age and from not just from kids on the playground, um, because they don't really know, but um, adults. I remember picking up cues off of adults and um, them saying, using words like crazy or insane or schizo or things like that. Um but also, if you ever saw 
anyone on screen, like on TV, movies with a, with a mental illness and, and how they'd react to that. They'd almost be scared. I, I grew up being scared of people with a mental illness. Or if you saw someone even exhibit any sort of um, heightened emotion out in public, you know, your parents would um, kind of take you by the shoulder and kind of protect you from this wild and unpredictable, crazy person, you know. So I just kind of, um, I just took cues off of people. But that coupled with the fact that no one talked about it, I think that was more um, more impactful to me is that I had never even, when I was younger growing up, I hadn't heard the word schizophrenia. I had only heard schizo in re- reference to someone being um, dangerous and wild and unpredictable. So I hadn't heard it, like I, I hadn't heard like bipolar until I was like in my teens um, because no one talked about mental illness. And I think it is the unknown, which is, the most terrifying to me um, because yeah, there were problematic terms being thrown around, but that was the only thing I knew of it. The rest was just the unknown. Uh, yeah. So. I mean, I, I just was heartbroken when, well, see, I don't want to give too much away, but there was an interaction you had with your mother and all she could care about was like your record. I do not blame my mother for anything because you have to understand that someone told her that at one point. Exactly. Of course. Right? It wasn't like my, my mother invented this permanent record. It has been <laughs> generation to generation. And um, we just didn't, either we didn't talk about it or when we did talk about it, it was like that. It was like, if you tell, if you, if anyone learns that you have a mental illness, it'll go on your record. Still to this day, not really sure what this record is. Apparently, it is a permanent record that can be accessed by future employers, future partners as well, um, future friends. Anyone can just take a look and be like, oh, she's mental. No, thank you. Like, I don't know whether like this permanent record was just like a big old tinder for your life. But. Right. <laughs> well, you know what's sad is there's a guy that I know and his daughter is exhibiting some um, some issues or having some mental health challenges. And I said, you know, you really need to take her to see someone. Have you talked to her about it? And he's like, oh, I don't want her a permanent record. I'm like, are you in the 1950s? What's wrong with you? Oh, my God. Yeah. So I guess it's still happening. Yes. A lot of people have told me that they also have had a talk about the permanent record. So this is not a unique story to me. My story is not unique at all. Um, it's just that... Yeah, like a, a lot of people, we hadn't talked about it. Like I'd never talked to any of my friends of like, hey, you, you heard of this permanent record that we're all on? <laughs> all right. on? You know, like and no one has ever, like I didn't talk about anyone because I was so scared. That's the thing. You get told that if anyone finds out what's inside of you, it'll ruin your life. You believe it. You do not take a chance on that. I did not take a chance on a permanent record. And ironically, that's what ruined my life. So, like, yeah, it all comes around. Well, you know, it's interesting because I want to go back to something you said earlier in the book. You say, from the ages of 9 to 19, I assume that depression was a bed-based illness of the apathetic. Yeah. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you just get up? Why don't you just get up? 
Like it's so easy to get up a bed. Like, and so this is again something that was not talked about. So that I just had to kind of make my own judgment. And um and and to me, I couldn't fathom why these people would stay in bed all day and not just get up and change their lives and, and be happy. Because to me, I was like, you could you have that choice. You're just not making that choice. And that is incredibly selfish and lazy. And um, I don't feel bad for you. And you're attention seeking. And that was my attitude to people. And I think, and the reason why I talk about this in the book, I think it's the most important thing to talk about in the book, actually, of, of everything, is that um, I wanted to expose these, these, these kind of very problematic um, attitudes that we have towards depression, anxiety, uh, mental illness, um, because that's what makes it harder for anyone to get help. That's what contributes to the stigma. Were like people like me back then, and I wasn't alone. Everyone was doing it. It was the nineties. Come on, <laughs> super problematic, um, and it was wrong. And so, like, I want, like, I wanted to expose that and show how wrong and ridiculous it is by making fun of it as well. It's so hard when people don't get it. And again, that goes back to that societal osmosis and the way we've been we've been taught to see mental illness. You write, I was 19 when I felt my mind begin to rot. What was that like? Terrifying. So um I felt so lonely. Like I felt so alone, basically, because I felt it happen, and since then, um, a lot of um, a lot of women have actually told me that around nineteen, when you know they go to university, this is when they started to feel like people, women who have bipolar two. This is when they started to feel it happen, and um, I didn't know what to do, and I just desperately wanted to hide it because I wanted to fit in, because I wanted to still have friends and boyfriends, and I didn't want anyone to look at me strange, or, or you know, um, I don't know, exclude me from anything, uh, all this kind of like superficial stuff. And uh, so I wanted to, to hide it. And I was scrambling, and because I wasn't in treatment, um, wasn't in therapy, didn't have that kind of help, um, I just tried to do it myself. And that was the worst thing in the world because um, doing it myself meant almost numbing my mind to the point where I couldn't feel the rot anymore. I had to push it all the way down. I had to put it in a place where it couldn't be accessed. And once I found that place and it worked for me, I just kept dumping it on there just kept putting like a just I think I call it like a landfill just it kept going and I wasn't dealing with it and sooner or later that would come up and kind of bite me so yeah well you write about numbness and you say while all forms of depression are valid my favorite has to be numbness it's like being wrapped in a blanket made from cashmere and denial the most luxurious combination in the known universe but eventually that cashmere and denial it's going to crack you had a breakdown and you ended up in this in the psych ward. Tell us about that time and and what was it like when you were like, shit, I can't, I just can't keep bearing this anymore. The landfill is exploded now. What am I going to do? 
that's that was so when I had my breakdown um when I was in the psych uh, in the psych ward I was incredulous I could not believe that someone like me would be in a psych ward that was my attitude because I'm in my mind I was like I'm normal what are you talking about I'm really normal I look like I I I have a job. I I have friends. I'm not some wild, unpredictable, dangerous, um, you know, schizo as I like grew up hearing. I was just a normal person. So why the hell was I in a psych ward? And it took me a long time to realize and to really understand that um, that mental rot and the build up. And what I had done to push it down instead of unpack it, it took me a really long time. But when I was in the psych ward, I was very confused. And I was like, I shouldn't, I don't belong here with these people. But I very much did. I really did belong there. But at the time, I was just in so much denial. Well, you had PTSD as well. Your brother died uh, when he was 16. And you oh, teared me up when I was reading about you holding a soft, sticky hand and and having those flashbacks and and being at the funeral. And you, t- I don't again, I don't want to give everything away. People need to get the book, but just some very powerful images. And I don't think people still fully really understand PTSD and how difficult it is. So you, the things that you were shoving in weren't like, oh, I failed an exam or oh, my friend's an ass, right? It was like deep stuff. Yeah, no, I really couldn't care if I failed an exam or not. But yeah, I, um, I mean, I'm not here to judge whether people, whether you have like serious enough PTSD or anxiety or depression. Maybe that is something that is important to to, to someone. But yeah, I had, um, I had a lot of PTSD and grief that I hadn't, um, I never sorted through and I never spoke about. Um, but that teamed with the fact that I just had a I had a clinical mental illness. A lot of the time, people, you know, in interviews, they'll ask me, "Well, did this contribute? Did that contribute? Did that contribute?" And the answer is yes. I mean, everything contributes. It all goes into my mind. But the fact is that inside my mind, the wiring is just a little different, and that I can't process things the same way as maybe another person can. That's just how I am. Built. This is chemical. I have a mood disorder, um, and that is something I can't. I can manage, but I can't control. So, even if, like, failing an exam was something that troubled me, like that would go into my brain, and it would be made a lot worse because of the engineering inside of it. So, and 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 being unable to process it. I, I completely know that it's a separate thing. I was just saying that the stuff you were shoving in there in that landfill was pretty heavy stuff. And you have an in, you already had a mood disorder. So that's going to be even more complicated. Yeah. Right. Okay, good. Exactly. It was just, um, yeah, the, the, the layers were a lot heavier. And um, yeah, I, I definitely needed uh, professional psychiatric help. Can you tell us the difference for people who don't know between bipolar one and bipolar two? Yeah, sure. Um, bipolar one um, 
we talk about bipolar one, bipolar two in terms of like the uh, extremeness of um, the manic state. So with bipolar one, um, people do have depressive episodes, but their manic states are quite extreme to the point where they can be dangerous and will need hospitalization. Uh, bipolar two, um, depressive episodes are more common and you have, um, but you do have frequent like hypermanic states. So a hypermanic episode is not, uh, doesn't require hospitalization, but you still um, are rendered somewhat useless. Like for me, like I have, uh, I talk really fast. I sweat a lot. I don't sleep at all. And I become obsessed with um, doing stuff or buying things. Um, I, I, I will buy a whole lot of random shit for no reason. Um, I will suddenly apply for jobs that I am not qualified for at all um or just just not in my range um I will just yeah I will just obsessively um try to achieve things um which is very strange I will have that kind of um like this sense of 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 grandeur like I can do these things when I when I clearly can't so that's that's the difference when you first came to terms that you did have uh, mental illness, you had bipolar too, and you start, first started getting treatment. What was that like? It was horrible. The medication was all wrong, and it was. And this again, not unique. This is actually pretty common because it's hard to get the levels right. It's hard to know because the mind is so complex. It's so unique to you that. It is really hard. There's no like one size fits all. It's not like ibuprofen, you know, like you have to, it, there's, you have to be really careful with it. And the testing goes on for like, you can't just do it for a couple of days. You have to like see how it feels over a week or so. Again, this is my experience. I do not speak for everyone with mental illness, but my experience was getting the medication right took a long time. There were times when I was um, severely over-medicated and would be falling asleep at my desk at work. And then I'd be under-medicated. And you could tell that from the hypermanic states that I was in. Um, and yeah, it took, man, it, 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 it took a while. But we weren't just treating bipolar 2 at that point. We There was a lot more happening with me in terms of... Um, anxiety um and uh psychosis I was a lot I was on a lot of antipsychotics as well um so there was just a ton of of um of medications happening at once but with bipolar 2 in the end it was lithium lithium was the key to everything and finding that level of lithium um took a while as well but I'm there now but it's always changing it is always changing um, some, sometimes I'll have to up the, the, the dosage every now and then when it's like a stressful time, but yeah, it's always changing because mood, moods are always changing. You know, 
if you have a mood disorder, it's a nightmare. It's a moving target. Feeling stressed lately, sluggish, having trouble sleeping and thinking about your never-ending to-do list? It happens to the best of us, but we've got an insider secret for you to help you live your healthiest life and stress a little less this year. Pair the award-winning, gut-nourishing, Just Thrive probiotic with the stress-busting, mood-uplifting power of Just Calm. These two products are game changers in helping you take control of your mental health and your overall health. They have been part of my daily routine for months, but you have to give them time to work. There is no magic overnight pill, even though we all wish there were. But trust me, these two products will help you live your best life. Just Thrive Probiotic is like a little gardener of your gut, safely eliminating bad bacteria and replenishing the good, and it actually produces antioxidants too. It can be opened and sprinkled into any food or drink, so it's a perfect probiotic for the whole family. And for next-level stress-busting mood support, add in Just Calm. This product has been proven to do the almost unimaginable. Quickly promote a healthy response to everyday stress, encourage a steady, serene, and balanced mood, drive mental clarity, focus, and alertness, and even support great energy and optimal sleep. This is true stress management built for our modern-day stress-filled world. Just Thrive Probiotics have more clinical research than just about anyone else in the industry. No fake marketing, no claims, just real proven results. Every product is natural and they have a money-back guarantee. What do you have to lose? To learn about this groundbreaking company, don't miss episode 1174, where I chatted with Tina, the CEO and co-founder. If you're ready to up your wellness game and beat bloat, digestive issues, stress, and more, you can get 15% off site-wide at justthrivehealth.com with promo code NATSAV15. That's N-A-T-S-A-V-15. While you're there, check out all their other research-based products for optimal gut and immune health. Just Thrive is your one-stop wellness shop. There's something for everyone, a probiotic for pets, vitamins for bone and heart health, and even a product to help with recurring UTIs, all with a bottom-of-the-bottle guarantee. Take control of your health this year with Just Thrive. You wrote in the book, uh, the first time I felt good on meds was a revelation. I felt like my mind could breathe. And when I say good, I don't mean happy. I'm not happy at all. By good, I mean in control. By good, I mean stable. By good, I mean me. I'd been at the mercy of my mind for so long that I'd forgotten what it was like to be in charge. That's really powerful. Thank you. I'm really not happy. Oh, my goodness. No, Yeah. I'm, I'm really depressed. Right. <laughs> but like, you wouldn't know. <laughs> terrible laughing, but the way you said I'm that. I'm laughing. But, like, but we're all laughing and depressed. That's not new. It's just that, um, you know, very few people like to talk about it, I guess. But yeah, um, my medication, absolutely. This, this, these aren't, this doesn't make me happy. In the same way that I don't believe that, I don't think like antidepressants make people happy. Um they just make them feel like they can get on with their day. Uh, but that, then again, I'm not sure. Antidepressants don't work on my brain. They don't work with people who have bipolar too. Um, it's a different, it's a different, it's a different beast. But with lithium, it just means that I can go through the day without flying into a hypermanic state or spiraling into a depressive episode. Because, you know, every day I wake up wondering if this is going to be the, the day. Is that a scary way to live? I wouldn't say I'm scared. 
because I have, I'm very lucky to have medication. I'm very lucky to have health insurance and I'm extremely lucky to have a, a psychiatrist, a therapist. Like I'm very privileged in, in those ways. I think it would be terrifying if you didn't have any of those. And it breaks my heart that like that is what it's like in this country that there's no access to to that unless you have like health insurance or whatever. But um yeah, I don't I wouldn't say I'm scared because I know I have a support system that if that ever were to happen. Like I was in a hypermanic state just last week. Uh because a lack of sleep is the main trigger to put me into a hypermanic state. And I um I didn't sleep one night, only had two hours of sleep, and I woke up sweating, talking fast to like I had to speak to my therapist and she was like, Yep, this is it's happening. And then I had to and she said, you know, you have to do go take an out of van, you have to sleep. When you wake up, you have to take another half out of van, go to sleep, and then restore yourself. So I know I have a system where I can get back to myself. And I'm very grateful for that. Oh, thank goodness. You know, at the beginning of the of this interview, I was saying everybody needs to read the book. Not only is your story so compelling and, and your humor, but you give people advice on things to, you know, what can help them. You have advice on anxiety. Uh, you say, if you're feeling out of control, look around you, find five things you can see, four things you can touch, three things you can hear, two things you can smell, and one thing you can taste. You talk about suicide and talking about not asking dumb questions, <laughs> you know, don't be judgmental. You also talked about, you also talked about the curist, which God, those people are so freaking annoying. And why don't you talk to us a little bit about these annoying people and why they need to like get a clue? <laughs> um, I mean, it's just because like I, the curist is for those of you who don't know, because I could have just made up that name, but there are people who uh, offer unsolicited advice on your mental illness so for example for those you know anyone with like depression will kind of know if you've said like oh I have depression someone will be like well have you tried uh have you tried exercise have you tried yoga have you tried drinking a green juice have you tried <laughs> the thing that my cousin once tried uh I went to a herbalist have you tried this there's these have you trieders and um I, I get so tired of them for, for so many reasons um, because there is there is just no way on earth that you would be able to help diagnose or any or or cure someone's mental illness with your suggestion given that most of the time you are not a mental health professional you are not their therapist. And those are the only two that I think I would allow to, to give <laughs> Um They're just like rando people just walking around being like, oh, have you tried it? To me, it's it's very narcissistic Definitely. that you would think that your little suggestion is going to be the be all and end all. Um, and the fact that you assume that these people haven't tried what you've suggested, because I have tried exercise and I have tried yoga and the green juices of course I've tried those things because I've I've wanted to to get better as it were and none of them work for me and I think 
that not just with mental illness, but a good rule of life is that if someone doesn't explicitly ask you for your advice on their condition, then you shouldn't give a suggestion. I would never dream of it. That's I'm just like, I think it's wild. I think it's wild. <laughs> I, would, I would never suggest, like, even as someone with a mental illness who has bipolar 2, who, who, who's been in this uh, for years, I would never even suggest anything to someone else who has bipolar 2. Yeah, no, I agree. They're completely different to me. They have like a different experience, a different reaction that I just, they drive me mental. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. They always think that they're doing like something good for you. They're always like, I just wanted to help. And it's like, don't put that on me. Don't try and make out like I'm the bad guy because I don't want your bad advice. <laughs> like, come on now. Uh, so yeah, they always like want to like guilt you or shame you or do uh, yeah. Stop it. No one like it's hard enough being mentally ill without you lot poking your nose in, just being like, oh, have you tried breathing in and out? <laughs> oh, I'm cured. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Oh my god. Oh my gosh. Now we we only have about 10 minutes left and I want to talk to you forever. I want to talk about TV and its portrayal of depression and mental illness. I have to say Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is my favorite show. I was so enamored. I thought, God, they finally, finally, somebody is doing this right. And you mentioned as well that they did a good job. That is the exception. That is not the rule. Yeah. I mean, the thing I loved about Crazy Ex-Girlfriend ultimately is that just it showed that you could just be a person with a mental health and that didn't envelop you and that w- and you could still be funny and charming and have a personality and like your whole thing wasn't this mental illness. Your whole thing isn't borderline personality disorder. Like that to me was so refreshing Um Because up until that point, I still, I mean, even six years ago when I was uh, uh, still coming to terms with mental illness, I couldn't find anything, any sort of materials that I could connect to. And for me, I connect by humor. That's what, like, that's what I can relate to. Um, So seeing Crazy X and, and seeing someone who could be, yeah, just a funny, charming woman and not have her mental illness be not her whole entire thing. That was so refreshing to me. I honestly just like love that. And also, I mean, I do talk about sexy French depression. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I feel that way all the time. And I couldn't, and like, I could never say to someone like, that's what I, I want that sexy depression <laughs> with that, with that. Like I've been crying a little bit, you know, and then I'm like smoking and I'm just, uh, I'm just so like troubled and all of that because, you know, that's like embarrassing stuff to say at the time it was like, oh, you can't, you can't glamorize, you can't romanticize depression like that. And I was like, yeah, but me by myself, yeah, a little bit would love to walking around my apartment (laughs) like that. I'd love to look hot instead of looking, um, you know, like the pile of rubble that I look like now, 
you know, I would do, I would do anything to be able to, to, to be in a black dress and, and be glamorous with my depression. Um, but instead I'm under like seven blankets with like unwashed hair and like a t-shirt from like 1992. Like this isn't the depression I dreamed of. <laughs> and I wanted to tell about that. And so when I saw that, I was like, this is, I mean, this is amazing. We can do this. I was so sad the show ended. I just wanted to go on and on. And the ending was so awesome, which I'm not going to give away, but people should really watch Craziest Girlfriend. That's that's an incredible show. And that My Diagnosis song I just loved. Reminds me of The Curious a little bit. You know, someone tried to tickle her with feathers or something. <laughs> like, that'll cure you for sure. But yeah, I mean, there and then there's so many like portrayals that I mentioned that aren't good. And I think, you know, one of the things that's interesting is I, I recently interviewed these two incredible men, um, Charles Crouch and uh, Corbin Coleman. They did a documentary called I'm Good Bro, Unmasking Black Male Depression. If you type that into YouTube, it's free. It's a great documentary. And I just posted on Talk Healthy Today, the show that we're doing this for. And it was just fantastic to really, you know, look at it. And you mentioned that in the book. It's not just white people who have depression, but that's what it seems to be the focus on. Um, not a big surprise. Mm. And it was just really great to get their point of view and to hear stories and to talk about the stigma in the African-American community and, and just the challenges there. So I highly recommend that. Oh, but the reason I brought that up is because his, I'm like, how did this go back to TV? Well, I brought it up. It's awesome. But he talked about when he was first in the psych ward, his brother didn't come to visit him because he thought he would be like Jack Nicholson and one flew over the cuckoo's nest. And he just visited. Mm. He's like, I thought you'd be, you know, in a straight jacket and a padded room and he's like yeah. no I'm just in a bed you know just like talking to a psychiatrist like yeah. it, it was such a revelation it was like oh my god I, I would have visited you sooner I had no idea yeah the insane asylums that are portrayed in movies have really yeah the straight jackets the padded cells the the unfriendly staff the the fact that there's just always something wrong with the lighting in in insane asylums I think I write there's always just like one flickering light I'm like would you find an electrician for this light <laughs> that seems to even when god help me I saw Joker in that insane asylum I was like please don't let there be one flickering light and there was and I was oh. like oh this is so funny oh, no. like I, I was just in a bed and the staff were amazing and they were so supportive and lovely. And yeah, it was, um, I mean, you know, psych wards are no joke. They're a tough place to be. But um, the people who worked there well with me um, were really great. And it wasn't like a scary uh, place. But, you know, people for Halloween still wear straight jackets, Ugh, which is wild. so crazy. I mean, Halloween is like a a lot of groups um but yeah like the straight jacket is still a, a thing that people find um really funny to dress up as it's tragic where are you with your parents my parents are not to blame for anything um and uh I still love my parents um so when people are like oh have they read the book have they read the book um there's nothing in there that um isn't true but also there's nothing in there that uh I find 
I think it was just like an important part of my journey getting here. And my parents have had their fair share handed down from them from generations, as I talk uh, as I talked about in the book. The they also come, and this is again a lot of people's families. I very rarely come across like a very open, emotional, communicative family, um, but these unhealthy and like toxic dynamics are, are passed down family but they and they come from also and I hate to say the word but society I don't like we live in a society but like the fact that they've picked up on the cues from um you know back in 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 their generation um because you know if you thought the 90s were bad then you know welcome to the 80s 70s 60s 50s like the way that we um look at mental illness and the way that we look at talking about feelings in general we've come a long way to now but it was it was really bad for them and I feel and I feel for my parents I have an immense empathy for my parents because they were probably feeling similarly to how I felt and they had no one to talk to and they just didn't have the tools to articulate it so yeah this isn't obviously anything to I, I don't blame my parents for anything um but it's good to demonstrate where this all came from, as in like way, 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 way back. And I want to break that cycle. That's what I want to do. With, with being a parent as well, someone's got to break that cycle. And I want it to be me because I don't want my kid going through that either. Exactly. Yeah, that's what we're doing with our daughter. We've been doing as well. It's it's so nice. Uh, Amanda, you're fantastic. The book is That's Mental, Painfully Funny Things That Drive Me Crazy About mean, Being Mentally Ill. Uh, this is available now. Yes. Everyone has to get this book. I mean, really, it's just phenomenal. Absolutely just blew me away. And anytime you want to come back, I would love to have you. Have you been thinking about going gray? And especially now we're in self-isolation and we kind of start to see that skunk line at the top of our head. And we're thinking, wait, is now the time to go gray? Or should I be coloring my hair while I'm at home? Well, today we have an incredible expert. Her name is Nicole Scott. And Nicole is the founder of Own Your Sparkle. And she's a holistic nutritionist and colleague of mine. And I'm really excited to have you on the show today, Nicole, because there are so many questions circulating about gray hair and the gray hair movement. So welcome to our show. Oh, I'm so glad to be here, Andrea. It's such a fun topic, especially right now where everybody is showing their beautiful gray line. <laughs> you know what I was, as I was getting ready for our interview this morning, I was looking at mine. Now I don't have a full hair, full head of gray, but I have a little bit at the top. It's kind of starting to come in and I do color my hair. And I thought, wait, I should hide it. But I'm like, no, 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 wait, hide it. I'm talking to Nicole, founder of Own Your Sparkle. I'm not hiding it. So yes, I've got some gray hairs at the top of my head right now. But I wanted, I really want to understand, you are, so, you are at the forefront of this movement and the gray hair movement. We've been hearing a lot about it. Tell me why you decided to let your hair go gray. Yeah. So a couple of years ago, so the summer of 2018, I actually found two lumps in my breasts. Um, I first went to my naturopath and she was very concerned and suspicious. So she sent me to the medical doctor. The medical doctor was very suspicious. Um, I lived in a week of unknown. What if they are cancer? Um, and it was very scary because these were new lumps that I had never felt before. And if any woman out there has ever kind of gone through that unknown, that's what I had gone through. And in that week of unknown, this was the question that I asked as a nutritionist and as a mom, Nicole, 
are you doing everything that you can in your control to minimize the chemical hit that shows up in your world? And when I started to deep dive, I came across hair dye because guess what? I was doing it every three weeks with my long, dark hair. It was coming in strong, ladies. <laughs> And uh, it was like, I get my hair dyed like one week and I could already see it. And then like you're playing with all of the different chemicals and sprays and stuff. And so I, I was shocked. I was shocked that I was ignoring this, um, thinking that I would be okay. And so I didn't want to take a chance anymore. Um, and so I just decided in that moment that I just didn't want to do it. See, I took a picture of the label and I know you're a label expert, so you get this, right? So then what do you do? We go home and re-research it. And, yeah. and, and this is what I came up with, Andrea. I came up with some of the, the ingredients in the particular hair dye that I was using at my hair salon was linked to cancer, organ toxicity, allergies, reproductive toxicity, and so much more. So I knew I needed to stop for me for my health, because I wanted to be around a long time for my kids. And I didn't want to live in the what if. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about the research behind hair dyes. Now I dye my hair. I'm very open about it. And I do try to choose better for you hair dye. I am familiar. There's the ammonia. I want to talk a little bit about the research and what are the facts? What does the science say? But also what are some of those ingredients that we absolutely should be avoiding? Yeah, well, I mean, you just named the first one, right? Which is ammonia, right? It, it really impacts our lungs. There's a lot of research on that. Um, in my book, you know, Get Naked With Your Natural Hair Color, I have a whole chapter of research where I deep dive into these really toxic, you know, ingredients. Um, formaldehyde, that's another big one. Um, PPD um, is a short term, but the PPD is in most hair dyes. And it's one out of every hundred women or men that can have a very, very severe allergic reaction. And when I started to deep dive and start to interview people that had like almost nearly death experiences with PPD, um, and I have those stories in my book and I'm, my book launch is coming up on Saturday and I'm interviewing Dr. Mitra Ray, who had three horrible experience with PPD um, and almost um, took her out. So, I mean, it's really, really um, interesting how certain people can react to these ingredients and how it can impact their health. And when it comes to science, what right. is the science saying? What is that? You, you know, you mentioned in the beginning that you had lumps on your breast. Now you talked about it being linked to certain types of cancers. What is the science saying? Like the top, you know, one or two or three things that have been, I remember hearing years ago, and this was before I even started dyeing my hair, that there was a link between hair dye and bladder cancer. Now I, I never actually did the research to find out if that was in fact reality, but what, is, what have you come across in your research? Yeah, so it's controversial um, in regards to, you, you, I went online and I found the research, like I found, I went to, you know, um, I think it's MedPub, where I went and I dug into the research and the research goes back to like 1970. Um, so the good news is that with the research that was coming out in the 70s and 80s and even 90s, um, 
uh, hair companies were paying attention to these ingredients linked to bladder cancer and breast cancer, and they started to remove some of those dangerous ones like coal tar. Um, and I believe that just got pulled out of the US as well within the last year. So, I mean, here we are in 2020 and still these, these highly toxic ingredients are just starting to come out of hair dye, which is really scary because the research has been around for 20 and 30 years. Um, I did use um, EWG, which is the Environmental Working Group. Um, what I loved about them is they had over 450 hair dyes that they had actually researched in the marketplace, the most common hair dyes that women are using. And out of those 450, based on their independent research, they had discovered that 400 of the 450, they classified it as a hazard. Wow. It's incredible. Mm -hmm. When it comes to dyeing our hair, because it is not for everybody to go gray. And, you know, even myself, I'm not there yet. And when the time comes, I guess I'll have to reevaluate. But right now I color my hair. What are some options for those of us who want to continue coloring our hair, choosing better hair dyes? Would that be the way to go? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I have a whole chapter in my book about I'm not ready to go gray, Nicole. So now what? And I totally see you and I hear you. It is a very scary move for a lot of women because we're so attached to what we look like and what um, our hair represents. I totally get it. So I totally honor you. I respect you. Whatever your decision is, it is a personal decision. And I always say, I never judge a woman if they decide that, you know, gray is not their thing. That is okay. But there are great healthy options. So when I started to research, I actually found one company out of um, Australia uh, that um, has products, actually the first company, I believe, that has taken the PPD out of their product and all of the top 10 nasties. And there's another company out of Europe as well that did the same thing. So there are much better options for us today, ladies, which is so inspiring that companies have paid attention and realized that we need to make sure that we're putting high quality stuff on our skin. I'm going to link to the better hair dyes below. So we've got you because I do think it's something that's important for many of us to have those options should we want to not go gray. Well, my mom, who's 73 years old, she was thinking about going gray. So what we, we were talking about it, we're like, okay, how do you transition over? And I told her to go to a you know, to a store, this is before we were in self-isolation, and to put on a wig and to actually, you know, play around. Is that something that you would recommend for people who are looking to transition? Oh, absolutely. It's something we talk about in my Gorgeous Gray Movement private Facebook group. And uh, I've had women actually shave their entire head because they didn't want to do the dreaded process, but they bought themselves a beautiful wig for the grow up position. Um, but yeah, there's actually, I did a lot of research and there's a lot of like wig companies and it's kind of a thing. More, more and more women are wearing wigs. So yeah, you can go to a store, check it out. Um, when I first started, I actually bought a gray ponytail <laughs> and it was really long and I put my hair back and I put it there and I was like, Oh, I think I could like real, like I could see myself. So I did kind of the same thing. I did the ponytail route because um, my hair was about five inches out and then I just kind of matched it and I got excited. So yeah, that's a great option, Andrea. Yeah. And when it comes to our gray hair, it's a little bit more coarse than our regular hair. What are yeah. some recommendations that you have in order to keep it healthy and bouncy and kind of just looking great? 
Okay, so one of the things that um, in the beginning when I went through this journey that I never expected is I actually had more hair growth, but I didn't realize it was hair growth. I thought it was kind of breakage because that's all I was used to was breakage with all of my hair dye. But no, my hairdresser's like, Nicole, because I would get all of these little pieces and I would go out to the world and I just felt you know weird because my hair was like crazy. And she gave me this natural putty. So I learned in the beginning when I had all of these like little new hair growth pieces coming out, I used a putty, um, but now that my I don't have that like crazy small pieces of hair growth anymore, um, I use um, argan oil, and um, I just put a little bit here on my palm, and I just put some in this morning, and I just kind of you know tap it up and just put the oil right through my hair, just kind of smooth it through. You just need a tiny little bit, and that's pretty much my my hair care for just keeping it in control. So it does become easy. In the beginning, it's a little crazy, and you might have to use a natural putty that I just got from my um, organic hair salon. And the product that I'm using right now for my organic hair salon is called um, Organic Color Systems, and they're from the UK. That's awesome. I, you know. The key is you really like the tips. And I think once you're starting to embrace the gray hair movement, I think understanding what we can do and simple things that we can do is important. And again, we're going to link to all the products Nicole's talking about below. We all, I, I just interviewed my hairdresser a couple of weeks ago, and she was talking about things that we can do while we're at home to keep our hair nice and bouncy, like putting in a leave-in conditioner, putting in like say, you know something like the argan oil is great or even coconut oil. So I'm going to link to that as well at the end of this video and then below as well. All right. Let's talk about the stigma around gray hair. And why do you think women don't want to let their hair go gray? Now, being the co-founder of Morphous and understanding as we transition into perimenopause and menopause, because and, and many people, by the way, correct me if I'm wrong, my partner Randy went gray in her 20s. So it's not necessarily an age-related thing, but I do know as we get older, we're over 45, we go into menopause and perimenopause, we're going through so many changes as it is, what do you think that stigma is and why we don't want to let our hair go gray? Yeah, because we're holding on to youth and there's this whole image of when you are youthful and you look good, um, you become more desired and wanted and fit into society and liked more. And so I dug into this in a chapter because I was really curious about, you know, where did it come from? And I mean, ladies, if you have some free time on your hand, just research the, the commercials that women got exposed to in the 50s and 60s around hair dye. And you'll probably want to cry. I mean, I'm so grateful that so many women have um, led a movement of strength and beauty and authenticity on their own to kind of say that, you know, we don't have to wake up in the morning with heels and a dress and lipstick on to please our man. But those were the commercials that women were exposed to. What's interesting, Andrea, is that I find the women that are most resistant to going gray are the women that were born and in that era of the 50s and 60s, because I believe they were brainwashed. They were, we were brainwashed from that media is this is the way that we needed to show up. This is the way that we needed to look. And if we didn't, we did not fit in and you were the sheep. 